Um, if you are a visitor with us, what we typically do a week in and week out is take a passage of scripture and kind of work through it uh, verse by verse, um, uh, chapter by chapter, book by book, letting God be the main uh, speaker today. I know that many of you are, are probably already looking at your watch and saying it's almost 12 o'clock and he's just about to start preaching. Um, yes, I am just about to start preaching. Um, but isn't this God so good to us because a typical football game lasts about three hours and we have no problem watching a game for three hours and we have just extended our service just a little bit longer to have half of a football game. So if you feel the, the need to have com, com, some bitterness or some complaining rising up in your heart, I pray that you will not watch the only half of the national championship game um, on Monday um, because you wouldn't want to. Anyway, we're going to read uh, God's word. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. God's word, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have, have drunk freely, then, the pour, then, the, then they pour the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in, in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. Amen. Please be seated. Let me just offer one more prayer as we hear the word. Father, use this hour. Help us see your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask uh, those of you here, um, who traveled uh, this past week to the store or to work or to visit a friend on horseback? I doubt many of you would raise your hand. Yet, little over a century ago, that was the most common form of transportation. Or I would ask, maybe some of you, how many of you chopped wood last night to heat your home? I know there's some of you who, who do that. The numbers may be slightly higher. Or how many of you last night read stories to your children by candlelight? Every one of us uses cars for transportation, electric or gas heat to, to warm our homes, electricity to, to light our homes and use it to read and other things. Yeah, those are things we rarely notice in everyday life. But these are dramatic shifts from the older way of life. Many of us here still remember the life before smartphones. And many of you wish we could go back to those days. But we can't. The world is always moving forward. The new is always trying to break through the old. That's part of the, the creational order. God gave us dominion over the world to 
to exercise our authority over it. And by doing that, we manipulate it and we try to improve it and, and um, uh, make it better for everybody. Well, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is no different. He lived a very normal life with his family in Nazareth, being uh, trained as a carpenter from his father Joseph and then living as a carpenter. But at his baptism, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, the heavens opened, the voice came from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus' life was very mundane and consistent and faithful. And when that proclamation happened from the Lord from above at his baptism, everything changed. He was now on a divine mission to bring about the will of the Father. The Spirit of God descended, and he began his earthly ministry as the Messiah. This was not just the beginning of his ministry, but this was the beginning of a new age. The old was fading away. The new had come. He was going to usher in the messianic age, the age of the Messiah. We even see that in how our history books divide history. We have before Christ and after Christ, or Anno Domini, the, the year of the Lord. Now, we know many secularists don't want to say that, so they say the com before the common era and the common era. But the, the, the dividing line of history, the, the era before Christ and the era after Christ, was inaugurated when Jesus Christ came and ushered in the age of the Messiah. As we look at this first sign today, we're going to look at it through four headings. The first is the setting of the sign. The setting of the sign. Chapters, uh, verses 1 through 3. Look back with me at the text. On the third day, note that, we'll come back to it later, the significance. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There was this wedding. These weddings uh, in the ancient world would probably last about seven days. Uh, the, re the responsibility to pay for all the the food for these seven-day celebration was towards the groom. The bridegroom had to pay these, these costs. Uh, Mary and, and Jesus were invited to this wedding. Uh, it could be a distant relative or it could have been a, a close friend. Uh, some suggested it was more of a close friend. And maybe even Mary had a responsibility to, to, to handle some of the, the catering with, uh, with being known of, of the wine. Uh, Jesus came, but he did not come alone, but he came with his new disciples. Uh, we're kind of picking up the story of John in chapter 2, but he added a few of his early disciples in uh, John chapter 1. Now, we know that we could possibly think that Mary knew this family a little bit more intimately. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I go to a wedding and I'm just a guest, I don't really know what's happening in the kitchen or what's happening behind the scenes. No one tells me that they ran out of, out of turkey. I'll find out, right? But they don't tell you. But if you are intimate part of the inner circle, you can kind of know what's happening. So Mary may have had inner knowledge there. Well, Mary kind of diagnoses the problem very quickly. Uh, we see that. She says to Jesus, they have no wine. There's the dilemma in, in the narrative. Uh, there is no wine left. The significance of this is that it would have brought shame to the bridegroom. Uh, this is, it's hard to understand the significance of, of shame in our culture. Uh, our culture is very different than the honor-shame culture of, of, the, of the New Testament. This would have been a very big deal not to have wine, to have run out. It would have brought shame on the groom, his family, and therefore brought shame on his bride and the family of 
the bride. Our culture is a guilt-innocent culture. Um, it's an individualistic societies, typically, where people break laws, they're guilty, and they seek justice or forgiveness to rectify a wrong. So in our society, that's how we typically operate. We, we, we are a guilt-innocence culture. Well, the shame-honor cultures describe more of a, a, a communal or a collectivist culture where people are shamed for not fulfilling group expectations and they seek to restore their honor before the community. It's very different, not individual, but it is all communal. Uh, this relational desire that Mary had for the bridegroom. They wanted not to bring shame to the groom or to the family. And possibly even Mary. Now, if Mary was, had any kind of responsibility in this wedding, it would have brought shame upon her as well. Now, when we, when we look at this, we, we have to ask ourselves, what was the motive behind Mary's declaration to Jesus? Because it says right here in the text, look at, read it again in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So the problem happens, Mary discovers it, and she looks right to Jesus and says, they have no wine. So why? Well, it, we don't know for exactly, but it could be very natural. Uh, tradition states at this point, Mary is, is widowed uh, and Joseph is gone. And Mary had probably learned to trust and depend on Jesus, her oldest son in Joseph's absence. We, we know that throughout the scriptures, Jesus is often called the, the carpenter's son, son of Joseph. But other places, it's just called the carpenter. So after Joseph died, the family probably survived on Jesus' income earned as a carpenter. And he, Mary had probably learned quite well how to depend on Jesus. When problems arise, what do I do? I look to Jesus. Not a bad older son to have in the family, right? <laughs> if I could just make this a, as an aside, I know many of you here have taken the responsibility of caring for aging parents. May I say that this pleases our God. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ looked after his own mother. Even at the end of the gospel when Jesus was hanging on the cross moments away from the end of his life he looked at his mom and he cared for her and looked at John and said John care for my mom. Mom go home with John. He's going to look after you now. Now I know many of you can I just say that I know the journey is long and it may seem like you don't have enough strength to continue but press on. Press on in the Lord and follow his example. Honor him, this brings him pleasure. So it could have been a very natural reason why Jesus, Mary looked at, looked at Jesus. They have no wine. Jesus, what do you think we should do? Like would be a very common thing. But it could have been a little bit more underlying as well. Because Mary knew the prophecies of the Lord Jesus. You can read through the Gospel of Luke. Mary knew, she treasured these things in her, in her heart, what the Messiah was going to happen. She would have heard of his baptism. Maybe she was trying to, to nudge or, or push Jesus to, to show his divinity. You know, we have no indication that Jesus was performing miracles in front of his family, but Mary knew the prophecies of her son. He knew that she was the Messiah. But truly, we don't know the motives. We don't know why Mary said what she, she did. That might be a helpful reminder for some of us today. Some of you may have trials in your own life relationally, and why did this happen, and Beloved, you may never know the motives of why someone does what they do. 
not only see the setting at the beginning, we see the Savior of the sign. Number two, the Savior of the sign. Look at verse 4. How does Jesus respond to his mother? Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus distanced himself from his mother here. He was respectful, but he was abrupt. Some of you may be reading the uh, New American, uh, or the New International Version, which says, Dear woman. Uh, the, the, the Greek there is just woman. It could be translated in certain sections and in some Greek literature as dear woman, a term of endearment, but that's not really the, the intent here. The word woman here is the same word that Jesus uses when he was on the cross. He doesn't mean to be rude, but he does mean to be to distance. It would be as if um, a, a person talking to an older woman who is not their, their mother by responding, ma'am, what does that have to do with me? Very common here in the South. Not as a term of endearment, but a term of, of distance. Polite, yet distancing. Well, why is Jesus distancing himself from his mother here? Well, I think at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is trying to show that he, does not no, he no longer answers to his mother. He has one authority. That is the Father who is in heaven. No human authority he will bow down to. Only the Father. He is now set on a divine mission to obey the Father in all things, even to death, to the cross. He says right there, for he, for he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when you read the Gospel of John, now many of us have read the Gospel of John, we've heard sermons on the Gospel of John. You know, if you're reading the Gospel of John for the first time, you heard, my hour has not yet come, you would ask yourself, what hour? What's he talking about? This is kind of an illusion that, that kind of traces throughout the entire gospel. The hour is always seen as the hour of the cross. The cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So if you're here and you're, you're a non-Christian, you're curious about Christianity, maybe invited by a friend or just trying to wonder what this thing about Christianity is, uh, I hope that that question would come to your mind as well. What does he mean by this hour? Well, Jesus is providing his purpose. The hour in which he would come would be when he would be glorified in his death and in his resurrection. The hour when his mission finally and fully would be complete. So as you read John's gospel, you will see that the hour is clearly the cross. Why the cross? Why is that so significant? Why do Christians always talk of the cross and the gospel? It's really tied to the very essence of the Bible. It's the key factor to understand all of life. There's four kind of headings that the Bible was, speaks about in creation. First, God created the world. He created it good. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even in this gospel, John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God echoes back to Genesis chapter 1. Well, the second kind of part in human history is the fall. The first humans disobeyed God and ushered death and sin and tragedy into the world. So now every time you hear of a child's death, or someone being diagnosed with cancer, or reading of a natural disaster, what you're, what you're being awoken to is, is the fall. Now we don't have to look out there. We know in our own hearts that we are all sinners. We all have fallen short of God's glory. And because of that sin, we know in our heart that we deserve to be punished. Sin must be punished if God is just. We, we, we know that. 
Because if someone wrongs us, we want justice. When, when we're the guilty party, we want mercy. And God in his kindness has provided mercy. And the third kind of uh, period of human history is redemption. The only way to get back to God is through God. God made a way for sinners by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to become sin so that we could be brought to God. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father in life, and he lived in perfect obedience to the Father in death. In death. Jesus came to that hour. And friends, hear me. Every single one of us will come to our hour. Our hour is coming when we will breathe our last. When we are moments away from eternity. Jesus came so that that hour for us could be connected to his hour for us. He came for that hour. He would hang on the cross, taking all the sin of everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him. And now we're still waiting for the final consummation of history, which is the fourth kind of overview of the entire scope of human history. Consummation of glorification. So now in Christ Jesus, if anyone would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as John has explained it, the Son of God, you may have life, eternal life, abundant life, and everlasting life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you want to have hope for eternal life, meaning that when your hour comes, you're safe in the Lord, that after you die, you will live again. Friend, the only way to, to live again is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Put your faith in him this morning. Even today, maybe at the end of the service, come down front, confess your sins, or maybe talk to the person next to you. Don't leave this room without making a commitment to Christ. For that's exactly what Mary did. Look at verse 5. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. He didn't go back to Jesus. I'm your mother. Do it. No, she says, I'm your servant. Do whatever he says. Number three, we see the symbol here of the sign. What, all, what is all this changing of water to wine? What does it symbolize? Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water as they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. This probably would have been maybe the chief waiter, um, not the, um, the, the, the hostess, host. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who came, uh, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let me just make a couple comments before we dive into the symbolism here. Uh, beloved, Jesus turns water into wine. Now, this wine would have been uh, alcoholic. It would have been fer fermented. Uh, some people say that it wasn't. Um, we, we know that from, if not, it says the, the head waiter's comments would make no sense. You have brought out good wine. It tasted like wine. It was like wine of that, that, that era. The Bible does not condemn uh, the drinking of, of wine. 
First um, Timothy chapter four, one through five. Just listen to this. It says now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are so seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We do not want to be people who condemn the natural world. That which God made is, is good and should be received with thanksgiving. But it should be received with thanksgiving to the Lord and made holy to the word of God and prayer. Meaning we should only use that which is natural in the world to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just add two cautions, depending on where you are this morning. I would say the two cautions when you approach a topic like alcohol, one would be legalism. By following certain rules, we think that we have a better standing with God, and thus we want others, or we demand others, to follow the same standards, the same convictions that, that we have, so that they can have a better standing with God. The second kind of Era, I believe that first one would be an error. The second one, licentiousness, is also an error, which says that we are free to do anything we want because we are free in Christ, and therefore I am free to live how I please. Those are kind of two barriers. Some of you may lean one way or may lean the other. Both are wrong. We cannot earn great favor with God because we follow certain rules. If we are not saved by works done in righteousness, but by his mercy and and we cannot live any way we want because we are under the law of christ and we are bound to live for his glory and for the good of his people so let me encourage you to consider as a, as a point of instruction not a mandate but a a pastor pastoral nudge i would strongly encourage you to lay down your right to drink. I have never heard anyone in my years of ministry ever say, who abstains from alcohol, I really regret not drinking. On the contrary, I have heard countless say, I wish I never started. Maybe this new year you can make a commitment to lay down alcohol as a safeguard for you and for the good of the church, and for the glory of, of God. That's just secondary. Now back to the text. Jesus turned water into wine. Why? What's the reason? What's the symbolism here? Look at, again, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day. On the third day. John does not provide a lot of dates in this gospel. Only at the beginning. You know, I think what, what John is doing here at the early part of his gospel, he's having this echo of creation. So in the beginning, God, we see in chapter 1. And now we see on the third day. Well, if you count out all the days that John has mentioned, this is not the third day of, Jesus is, is, uh, of, of John's gospel. It's the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. Or it's the, the, the age of the new Sabbath. Jesus has arrived to usher in the age of rest, the age of the Messiah, when God's people will rest from their labors, no longer trying to earn their salvation, but they will rest 
in the person of rest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what God is trying to show us here is that the old system of the old covenant is being pushed aside and the new covenant is coming forward. Notice the, the picture in this narrative, the, the six stone jars that would have been used for the Jewish rites of, of purification, a clear symbol of the old covenant. Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he takes that which represents the old covenant and uses it to usher in this new wine. Now, why wine? When you read through the, the prophets, specifically the minor prophets, one of the, the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, it'll be the age of new wine. It'll be the age of blessing and abundance. Jesus is clearly communicating that he is the bridegroom that is to come. Isn't it interesting here that the bridegroom doesn't have a name? It's not concerning us who the bridegroom was here. Because as we read this, what we're trying to, what I think John's trying to get us to see is that Jesus is the bridegroom. He calls himself that in Matthew. He says, when the bridegroom is with us, then we will celebrate and feast. But when I go, that's when you, you fast. And even look at the, the reversal of shame here. This is what happens in the new age of the Messiah. When the Messiah has come, shame shall be reversed. The great fear is that there's no wine. The, the bridegroom will have shame upon himself, shame upon his family, shame upon his, his friends. But notice what happens in John chapter uh, 2. Look what the master of the house says. Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, but the poor wine. But you, have you kept the good wine until now? So it's not only that he's, he's brought shame, he's brought honor. Isn't, isn't that beautiful? That is the age of the Messiah. The age of the Messiah is you who deserve shame because of how you lived are going to be given the honor of the Messiah. You're going to give the reputation of Christ. He's going to credit his life to you. This is a wonderful and glorious thing. The bridegroom has come with new wine and a new covenant. This is why we see our last point, number four. Of how important it is to see the sign. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember last week, what was the, the whole purpose of John's gospel? I write these things to you that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. This, the first of the signs, did what? Manifested, showed, displayed his glory. And it wasn't to everybody. It was to his disciples, to his mom, and to the servants. That's how our Lord manifested his glory. Not to the, the, the masses and the wealthy and the rich. No, he came to the servant quarters. He came to his, his family. He showed that he had the power over creation. The one who spoke it into existence in Genesis chapter 1. As we see in John chapter 1, it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the beginning with God, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. If Jesus Christ made everything, I can change water into wine. I can do anything. Because this material world is mine. It's my creation. I could do as I see fit. 
And when the disciples saw it, when his mom saw it, what happened? They believed. They believed. What about you? When you hear this sign, when you hear of Christ, do you believe? Do you believe the things that we've been talking about all service? That in Christ your sins can be forgiven? Every single one? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place to pay for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to, to take his hour on the cross for you so that in your hour you could die in peace and go to heaven with God forever? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to usher in the new age of the Messiah, the last days, the messianic age? We're living that out right now as God's people. When we gather and assemble right here, we are modeling the end time reality that one day Jesus Christ is coming back and we are going to live as Christians in the age of the Messiah now, holy and righteous and godly, struggling with sin, but fighting and fighting and fighting to be pure so that God will be pleased when he returns. Friends, Jesus came for the hour of the cross to take your sins and mine. And for all those out there who are, have yet to repent and believe, Jesus manifested his glory, hear me, so we could experience his glory. One day, when we breathe our last, we will be ushered from this life of pain toil and sadness and grief to the land of glory where there is joy and hope forevermore. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing you may have life now and forevermore in his name. Father, we pray that we would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by believing, we may have life in his name. Amen. Uh, this last song is a simple song. Um, it's really a, a song of declaration. It's a song of confession. Uh, my Jesus, I love thee. So I pray today, if you are not a a follower of Christ, I pray that this song would become your song. I pray that you could say, my Jesus, the one who died for me.